Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, we visit Noma and its founder, René Redzapi, to talk about the restaurant's first ever magazine. Plus, BMW's beautiful title, Freud Forever, and a new publication celebrating diverse folk artistic practices worldwide. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now we head to Copenhagen, where we visit Noma and its founder, René Redzapi, to learn all about the restaurant's first-ever magazine. Titled Noma in Kyoto, this handsome publication is, as René himself defines it, a love letter to Kyoto and Japan. The founder of Noma, René Redzepi, did not expect that his first trip to Kyoto would one day lead to the publication of the restaurant's first-ever magazine. It all began with a lunch reservation in 2009. Bookings weren't perennially full at the time, but one morning, as René went through the list of reservations, one name stood out. I was like, whoa, is Murata, Chef Murata-san from the world-famous Kikunoi? restaurant in Kyoto coming to dine with us. I couldn't believe it. And then a few hours later, it was him. He ate, and then he said, come to Kyoto. The renowned Michelin-starred chef and restaurant owner is perhaps best known for his lifelong work in preserving and promoting Japan's deep-rooted culinary traditions. Under Murata's wing, René's first trip to the country marked a significant moment in his career as a cook one that would define the course of his restaurant for years to come. I remember arriving in Japan, and the first thing we do is that we walk around the district of Gion in Kyoto, which is a historical district. It was late at night, there was no people around, and I felt like I was in, an, in a movie set. You know, I just couldn't believe it that something so different could exist right here. And we sat in, and we had our first what Japanese call kaiseki meal, which is basically a tasting menu meal, a very traditional way of serving a tasting menu in Japanese, you know. And um, I had this deep expression of seasonality served to you. Not only the dishes and the ingredients were seasonal, but the plateware were, was selected so as to express the moment you're in. Uh, the decor had been changed. It was just mind-blowing, and that, I think, already from the beginning, I was just so blown away by it. Years later, Noma would go on to open a pop-up restaurant in Kyoto. Here, René got to experience firsthand the rich traditions of Japan's culinary culture and beyond. Then came the idea to document the restaurant's time in the Japanese city, and the collective effort behind opening and running a pop-up for the world's number one restaurant. We were back home in Copenhagen, and we had planned this for two years. We've had so many excursions back and forth, meeting people. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people were helping us pull this off. And it was almost as if people really couldn't, they just didn't know how much work goes into it and all the different people involved in such a project. And so Tracy, one of um, the people that work at Noma, she said, why don't we try to create a little pamphlet for the team, 
so we can remember all the different people. And at that moment, it was just as if struck by lightning, like, why don't we just do our own magazine and try to put together a document of how we saw this place so that people can be inspired and they can read something in a new and fresh way that, you know, they probably can't do in other publications on Japan or Kyoto. The project quickly evolved into something bigger, what Rene now describes as a love letter to Kyoto. To learn all about it, I hopped on my bike and met Rene in one of Noma's long greenhouses that stretch across the lush plot of land. Sitting on a wooden desk, he's holding a brand new copy of Noma in Kyoto. The handsome magazine unfolds over 220 pages of in-depth reporting and great photography. Printed in Sweden, not too far from Copenhagen, the issue is made from thick, high-quality paper and features two distinct covers, one on each side. Thematically, the magazine goes well beyond recounting the restaurant's time spent in Kyoto. It provides a thorough exploration of the country's culture seen through the lens of René and his team, drawing from their years of experience in Japan. And then as we're starting to go into the nitty-gritty part of what is this magazine about and why does the world need another magazine, isn't or hasn't there been enough stuff written about Kyoto already in, the, <laughs> in its thousands of years of history? And we decided very quickly that we would focus on what made our experience special. What did our team do in the six months that we lived there that made a difference to us, that we thought was special? And then we'd focus on them and sharing them so that people could learn something not just about the city, but also some of the deeper cultural parts of the craft of making pottery, for instance, or um, a guide to restaurants that you do, just won't see in regular uh, guidebooks. There's just so much other things that we thought we could share with the world and make particularly people in the West understand some of the deepness of the culture and the crafts there that we feel like gets unnoticed over here. As René and the team got into developing the publication, he appreciated the beauty of collecting a diverse set of different stories. Noma in Kyoto allowed René to bring many different viewpoints, opinions and thoughts into one magazine. Contributors ranged from sommeliers and seasoned travel riders to sake experts and trained hikers. You know, we started out, we didn't know how big it was going to be. I loved making a magazine because unlike making books, in the magazine it was like, hey, shouldn't we have something about sake? And we make that decision, yes, and we find someone that can write about sake. Or what about if we need someone to write about omontenashi, which is the art of Japanese hospitality. Of course we should have someone in there. Who do we know that does that well? I particularly wanted something on hiking because I think Japanese nature is extraordinary. It's a mountain country. And, you know, we can just contact almost anyone and suddenly you have a vision and a story in there that fits within what you want but it stands alone as its, as its own unique thing. Greg Maud, the writer who did the hiking piece, he's done many hiking pieces, 
for the New York Times and so on and so forth. And we contacted him and said, could you please talk about walking in Kyoto? So it's not, you know, a Noma-esque view on it, but we wanted to have hiking or walking in there. And it becomes a different viewpoint, but it fits within what we wanted. And I love that about making a magazine. You can have so many different opinions, so many different voices. You can go from one story where it can be raw and very uh, almost childish in its approach and in its writing. And then a few pages further on, you have something very slick and professional and done up by a writer that's just been doing this for forever, you know. And then a few pages later, you have a sommelier that comes with an almost gonzo-like description of drinking wine in Japan. René turns the pages of the magazine while he sips a cup of hot tea and shares some of his favorite stories from the issue. These range from the importance of using the right type of water in cooking to a guide for finding the right cooking knives. He also delves into the Japanese art of hospitality, known as omotenashi, connecting it to his vivid memory of a hike on an island in southern Japan. Right now I'm looking at the piece by one of our cooks. His name is Shui. He's Australian-Japanese. And it's called Liquid Life. And it says here, Essential for life, water is the very compound on which Kyoto rests. A city favored by an abundance of pure, cool groundwater that has shaped the cuisine and sustained culture. And it sounds crazy for us here in the West to think that a component like what water you cook with, is it soft? What level of softness does it have? Do you have your own well? And all these aspects are so hugely important to Japanese culture and food that it's mind-blowing to understand that even the most mundane everyday, can it be more mundane and everyday than a cup of water? That there is a selection and a process behind it and how you're going to infuse or boil your broths. Are you boiling that in soft water or hard water or something in between, you know? That is such a carefully selected thing for Japanese people. So I think that that would surprise people that don't know about Japanese culture. And I mean, even this, Omontanashi. Omontanashi is, it says here, it's the consideration of the guest that is the soul of Omontanashi. From a pine needle on a coaster to a tiny trinket evoking childhood memories. That it's a belief system that goes way beyond hospitality. And for me personally, the reason why I specifically wanted a story that describes Omontanashi for the Western audience in here is because I was out hiking in Japan. I was hiking 1,200 kilometers on the island of Shikoku. And it's a very long hike, very difficult. I'm completely knackered. I'm almost ready to give up. I have to climb up some stairs to a temple. I leave my rucksack in the bottom of the temple. And when I come back, there are two perfectly polished nectarines on my rucksack. And somebody just left them there and then they left, not expecting anything in return, just a gift. And that to me at that time was like, wow, thank you. You know, it's like a, it's almost as if you're a footballer and people are cheering you on. Um, and that to me perhaps is what I understand as the, the roots of Omontanashi 
It's a type of reciprocity, but expecting nothing in return. It's just you do it just to do it. And that is something that's quite mind-blowing and ingrained in Japanese food culture and perhaps even in Japanese people. And so there's a story on that. I really like that about it. There's a story on knives, <laughs> how to select knives. There's also a story of one of the great creators from the Japanese restaurant scene, Yoshihiri Murata, where, you know, in his uh, well into his 70s, he's still working, still active, still creative, still curious, still not a type of person that says, I know how I want things. He's still breaking his own rules and the standards that he set for himself. It's mind-blowing that, that people still have that. Then he turns to one of his favorite pieces, one that looks at the importance of seasonality of produce as being so ingrained in Japanese food culture. You hear a cook say it and it sounds like a broken record. Oh, you, we should eat more seasonally and so on and so forth. But when it goes beyond hearing a broken record, it's like in your DNA. That of course, in the season of mountain vegetables in spring, you're only going to focus on, uh, on that and you'll be eating that. That is something that is quite mind-blowing. And then, you know, the way that the year has been divided into 72 micro-seasons. And they have this incredible, as with most things in Japan, nothing exists just to exist. There's a meaning and a philosophy behind it. So in the 72 different micro-seasons, you have the first one is called the beginning of spring. The east wind melts the thick ice. Bush warbles sing in the countryside. Ice cracks, allowing fish to emerge. <laughs> That's how the Japanese are describing this specific micro-season. And the next micro-season that comes is rainwater. Rain falls, moisturing the soil. Mist lies over the land. Trees and plants Put forth buds. And then that micro-season goes into insects awakening, which is a fantastic season. And then further in the year, suddenly you have white dew, the micro-season of white dew, or the micro-season of first frost. It's just mind-blowing to be able to dive into something like that and, and understand deep, deep meaning behind things. And you can get deep meaning and deep purpose if you allow yourself enough time. And you will really find that in Japan. The magazine then ends with a poem on Kyoto, penned by American actress and now Copenhagen resident Lily Collins. Lily, she's a regular. She lives in Copenhagen. And um, yeah, I think she has a, an eye for things and a quite sensitive personality. And so we just asked her, would you like to sort of bring in a reflection of the city, something that isn't long, but just a reflection. And then it ended up being sort of a, a farewell in the magazine, you know, a little delightful poem of somebody visiting Japan and Kyoto. Finally, Rene reflects with me on the challenges of self-publishing a magazine for the first time. When you self-publish, you undergo all the risk as well. That is the first time we also try that. And that's actually more scary than I thought to be able to order paper for thousands of copies and 
pay for it up front and not really knowing whether you're actually going to get your money back. You're just going to have to wait and see. And when you do work with a publisher, that's all on them. And I've had a, a very big respect towards that, that, you know, you do everything, you pay for everything. There's photographers, there's writers, the book, the design, the paper, and so on and so forth. And you have all these expenses, and then you just hope that it will earn its way back. That has been um, a new uh, pocket of stress that I actually haven't tried before. And I have many, 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 many deep pockets of stress <laughs> in my in my jacket. Uh, I feel like it's full of pockets. But suddenly there's a new one, which is called self-publishing. Noma in Kyoto is, for René, the first of many new magazine issues to come. Having thoroughly enjoyed this project, he's brimming with ideas for what comes next. I really love doing this magazine. Perhaps we should just do magazines. Noma magazines on the topics that we love, where we feel like we can do and offer something that you can't find anywhere else. And, um, you know, the first thing I thought was fermentation. We should have a magazine on fermentation. Where is fermentation right now? I also love pastry. <laughs> it's a little stupid, but I love eating sweet things. And I'm like, wow, what if we had a, a magazine on pastries? But then I thought, what about if we had a guide to Copenhagen? What if we did Noma in, in Copenhagen and we actually made a magazine about our own place and gave people an uh, opportunity to experience that in a different way? That would be something. For Monocle Radio at Noma in Copenhagen, I'm Gabriele Delisanti. Thank you very much, René, and Gabriele Delisanti for the report as well. And now, I had the pleasure to speak with the team behind a magazine made by BMW. It's called Freud Forever. The beautiful title was awarded by the Society of Publication Designers and the Art Directors Club for Germany. And for their second issue, the title explores the question of what new really means. What does it take for something to be truly new? Well, to answer me that, I spoke with editorial director David Barnwell and design director Francisca Coupold. Well, the second word, I think, is everyone knows what forever means, but Freude is a very specific German word that is also very difficult to explain to someone who doesn't know what Freude is. So there's a couple, I think, of words also in Swedish or whatever that say something and you don't really have an explanation outside of Germany for that. But um, Freude is, I mean, you could kind of try to translate it with joy or pleasure, but it doesn't really it's not the same because Freude isn't something you can work for. It's something that just happens. It's something, just a situation where you feel it. It's just a, a really deep feeling you experience. And that's what this magazine is all about. And that's why we called it Freude Forever. Obviously, David, you can always say something about this too, but it's obviously something that lives within BMW and their claim for such a long time. And that's why it made a lot of sense to name the magazine like that. And David, I was going to ask, what made uh, BMW actually to want to publish a print title and, and a beautiful one as well? Because perhaps it's unexpected. It's not your usual, you know, car magazine, if people are thinking of that. Would you mind telling us? This is exactly right. And I'm, I'm happy you see it like this and that, that you sort of have that experience because that is very much the intention. 
So the backstory is that BMW used to have a print magazine. It was more sort of, a, let's say, a, a classic customer magazine, as you would know from the automotive business. It was talking a lot about product. It was talking a lot about the industry, talking a lot about the business as such. It was, if in lack of a better word, very inward looking. That magazine was then canceled a few years ago, and then they wanted to reintroduce a printed product and came to us with the very open, very broad pitch of a magazine. And there was nothing more really to it. It was just, we want to have a magazine again, which is a wonderful brief to work from, but also a very difficult brief to work from because, you know, you start asking all these questions, okay, for who, about what, how big, how small, how often. But what relatively quickly became clear to us was that we didn't see a future in a classical customer magazine. We figured that if this was supposed to have some kind of real impact, we needed to really think this idea of a, of a customer magazine completely new. And instead of focusing heavily on the product, as this traditionally is done, we figured, okay, we'd try and have a look at how can we come up with something which is, in terms of the storytelling and the quality, so good that it would encourage people to pick it up and maybe even go to the newsstands because we believe, and this is sort of like the core of the whole thing, we're not in competition with Mercedes or Audi. We are, in fact, in competition with Netflix and Instagram, YouTube and podcasting and all the other things that presumably our readers would like to spend their time with. So if we are to convince them to spend time with our content, it has to be really, really, really good and it has to be really, really, really engaging. And it took a lot of back and forth, obviously, with BMW to convince them that this is the future of branded publishing. But to their credit, they saw the potential and they gave us a lot of freedom. Um, they gave us a lot of creative control and the output is uh, what you hold in your hands. Well, and talking about what I'm holding in my hands, I'm obsessed with the cover. I mean, it's so tactile. It's 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 incredible, actually. I mean, perhaps who perhaps is better to talk about this beautiful cover, actually? The first thing, and that's why I'm really happy that you say this, I mean, it was supposed to be a haptical moment, like something that anticipates and instills curiosity from, from the beginning. And we really wanted to create different layers. And that's also something, you know, within the story and maybe something David can talk about. But we wanted also for the cover to create some sort of three layers in each offering a new perspective on magazines, on the story inside. And it also should be, since we're talking about the new, I mean, that also says the, the headline of the cover is the Neue New. So we were also thinking of what does the new actually really mean? So we also wanted to create a magazine that is new and also not only lives in the printed world, but is also a bridge between a physical and a digital world. So that's why we created those three layers. And the first layer is obviously the, the first cover and it's a very haptical moment so we we decided to have the motive and the cover lines embossed so you would actually really feel the quality of the of the paper and yeah just spark some curiosity what this motive could really be about and also have the the headline in our monothematic font because it's always a monothematic magazine and then you would open the cover and it would come to the to the second cover and the second cover is the exact motive as the embossed one but in full color and with details and everything so you open it up and you see the real picture of of the flower that is embossed on the cover and you would have some explanatory copy and a qr code and the qr code leads you then to the third perspective and to the ar experience so we also not only have a really nice 
to touch cover, but we also have a very augmented and digital experience actually going on. And, and as I said before, the paper is something really special. So we had the honor to work with Gmund and I mean, which I love, which I love. I know Gmund is an amazing paper manufacturer in Germany and they do really high quality paper. It's super expensive. So I'm I'm really lucky because I always wanted to work with Moon. So I'm I was really happy to work with it. So they have a, a generally very strong focus on sustainability. So all their paper is really sustainable, which was also a very important point in producing this magazine. And of course, you can really feel and touch it. And it had some obstacles because it's it's made out of grass. So you have those little grass pieces in between. So it was really difficult to emboss <laughs> because it's so busy due to those those grass pieces that you can almost not see embossed content on it. So we had to trick a little bit and work with outlines so you could actually really see the embossed outcome. But it was but but it's just amazing. It just feels good. It smells a little weird. It kind of reminds me of my, you know, a rabbit's cake with, I don't know, some sort of grass, but that's just that's the paper. It's nature. So we like that. We like that. And, and David, tell us editorially. I said that is not your usual conventional magazine that perhaps you would expect from a car brand, but what types of topics uh, are you yeah. planning to cover actually in the magazine? And perhaps especially in the in the current issue, issue two. Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the magazine as a bearing principle treats the idea of leap innovators. So we focus on personalities, creators, ideas that can really help push society as a whole forward. Right? So we work with this idea of creating a brighter future for everyone. And obviously this angles very well with what BMW would like to communicate about their positioning and their purpose in the market, which is very challenging, not only for BMW, but for all car makers. And again, this was a long process of going back and forth with them. But at the end of the day, we managed to come up with a concept that we feel like really reflects where BMW is moving as a brand and as a company, but at the same time gives us this incredible editorial freedom to dig out all these incredible stories, persons, really inspirational figures that we can then tell all these crazy stories about. And We've chosen at the same time, this is not only for this issue, but also as a bearing principle, to categorize the magazine into seven senses. So if you read the magazine, you'll be taken through seven senses. And again, this is a wonderful way of telling stories because it gives us a, a nice and broad toolbox to you know, find the right protagonist, figure out exactly how do they contribute with their innovations and what, what's the story behind. But also because we feel like no matter who you are and what your role in all of this is, what really connects us as human beings is our ability to sense the world around us. And this has really worked well. I feel like it has given us exactly the tools that we needed to come up with the right stories for this kind of thing. And again, BMW, we have to give them credit that they've given us this kind of freedom and this kind of playground to come up with a concept which is, you know, admittedly a little bit out there. It is a little bit academic. It is a little bit highbrow. It's a magazine that really demands something from you. You, We really encourage you to take your time and, 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 and dive into this. But we believe that the payoff is that you'll be taken through and transported through a whole set of new worlds and told in a way which feels very relatable and above all, very human. So that's sort of the logic behind it. Obviously, it's a little bit difficult if you don't have the magazine in front of you, but it's very much on purpose. It's, it's designed to be very personal. It's designed to be very human. And these stories are best told through people that you can relate to, so human beings, 
but then again through the senses that we all share. And Francisca, where can actually people get a hold of a copy? I don't know what's kind of your distribution method or how does that work? You can actually buy it also in Germany, for example. I mean, there's a bunch of grocery stores, for example, you can buy it, but also at airports, um, train stations. So like bigger newspaper stands that have also international magazines, you can actually buy the magazine. But also we do have a website. It's freudeforever.com and you can actually really buy the magazine there and also the old issue you can buy there as a bundle and read through both of them. But that's the, the best way actually to get the magazine now. Thank you very much, David and Francisca. And the second edition of Freud Forever is out now. And it's time for another new publication, and this one is called Rome. Rome is a collaborative anthology exploring the modern ways that people are engaging with the past. Monaco's Maylie Evans spoke to the magazine's editor, Henry Raymond Picard, and the publication's designer, Tone Stockwell. They joined her at our studios at Midori House. I sort of first kind of became interested in the idea of folk, folklore, and, you know, folk as a people and the expressions from Mike Mignola, who is an illustrator. He does the Hellboy series, and all of his work is very much wrapped in this folklore, but more of a mythological sort of standpoint. Learning about this, you find out folklore is all about, you know, monsters and like ufos how does it relate to like folk music from my perspective as a sort of visual storyteller it's just the stories that people tell each other and the stories of people really i mean sort of anything is folk really when you look at it and how people interact we have such a sort of historical view of folk looking into the past and the practices and rituals and the lives of these people. And for me, I find it quite interesting. Okay, why is folk nowadays? It's the same with words like heritage as well, like heritage industry. They're words that carry a lot of weight and a lot of interpretations. And one thing through the people we've talked to through putting Rome together is that folk means something different to everyone in the same way that the word heritage means something different to everyone. So while we're looking at things that have a heritage focus, and that for me would be my view of folk, that it's the offering, the creative offering of a culture or a group of people in response to their landscape, their history, their experience. That's why Rome sort of developed into this huge thing, this massive book, because there were just so many different ways of looking at it. And I was really struck, um, went to the opening for the publication and you're really keen to stress this is not a folk revival. It's a, it's sort of a phrase that's bandied around a lot, but you're very keen to stress that this isn't that or, you know, people have been doing this stuff and continue to, to practice and invoke in whatever medium they're working in. Tell me a bit more about that and why I guess that's been annotated and underlined. Well, credit to pointing out this view has to go to Ben Edge, who's in the opening interview of the book. Folk revival for me always seems like an inherently negative way of phrasing things because it sort of, for me, conjures up the image of a reanimated corpse that every now and then gets up, does something, and then gets buried again. In the same way, folk revival also has a very clear image in people's minds. It's people sitting around stone circles in the 50s and 60s, taking LSD and writing folk songs. And we wanted to point out that 
this is not the same as that, that people, instead of looking back wholly to the past, are moving with modernity. They're incorporating technology, AI, other modern practices and elements of the modern world into their folk art and modern issues as well. Everything from massive infrastructure projects to the right to roam, which I think is something that's definitely come about recently with people being sort of forced to stay in their local area and look at the local area with a more appreciative eye. Um, I'm talking specifically about the sort of like COVID lockdowns when people stayed around their local area and they realised, I think, how little of it was actually accessible to them. And so you'll see like right to roam and an interest in your local history, your local tall tales and folk tales. I think that can explain a lot of interest in recent years. From my understanding, there's networks online and in the digital spaces. But maybe, Tom, you can talk me through the importance of actually bringing that all together and, and bringing that into a physical, sort of tangible object. As an illustrator, I love magazines. I love books and physical objects, prints, you know, anything tangible, because there's just a quality with it that you just don't really get online. So I think, and you being an archaeologist or interested in archaeology, sort of makes sense because, you know, it's the tangible artefact of it, really. The majority of the sort of folk artistic movement at the moment is can only really be found on Instagram. Obviously, that's ironic because it's a folk artistic movement, but it's completely hemmed into a social media site. The sort of archaeologist in me is screaming at the sort of vulnerability of that, that one hacking event, one you know, <laughs> one database catches on fire, then the entire thing shuts down and that and it's all gone. I needed proof that this movement existed. And that's, for me and Tom, it was like, we need this in a physical thing that can be stored. You know, it can be photocopied, it can be, you know, what, what, whatever. Something that resembled an, an artefact in a way. You've got quite a range of mediums covered here. Maybe each of you could share one story that maybe surprised you or, or, or has kind of stuck with you. One that stands out for me, less more so just sort of the the understanding that I got from it really was um, Rue Kenyon, the forager, who's actually has the last article in the book written by Connor Cudmore. I met up with him. I well, I first went on a sort of foraging trip with him and like a small small group of people, and then had a chat with him. We had a call with him. Um, I met up with him to sort of just interview him, have a chat, take some photos and sort of build or sort of lay the foundations for what's in the final magazine. And it really opened my eyes because, I mean, foraging's always been sort of a, a nice fascination, a sort of, you know, and it's, it kind of represents, you know, a sort of like call to nature, you know, reject like supermarket kind of thing. but. I didn't really, I never really thought of it in like this sort of grand cosmic way, but actually talking to him, we went from talking about like biology and science to like land ownership to politics. It's amazing because the more you analyze sort of that, it just covers everything to talking about like, you know, people who grew up, you know, on a, like a forest diet sort of develop like different resistances or like gut bacteria um to you know like how much of the uk has been deforested and is now privately owned so you can't actually access any of these spaces to then foraging within you know an urban landscape like london actually 
it's incredible because you have way more variety because more goods are brought in more sort of non-native plants and species kind of get sort of melded in together than you would in the countryside yeah it really opened my eyes i think it's amazing how this one small thing that may seem kind of quite inconsequential actually ties kind of everything together for me sort of similarly to that is that it really surprised me how ready people are to readdress our sort of folk traditions and our way of expressing our culture here in the U- in the UK and uh, now I don't mean that in terms of English Scottish Irish and Welsh I mean in terms of like just people in local communities so for instance with me as a Londoner you know being a very diverse area that people are looking at how to express themselves as a community as a multicultural community you know Polish Nigerian Caribbean um, you know and and English altogether you know what comes out of that and I wanted to try and capture that in Rome and one thing that really surprised me with it is how far that can go so one of the ones that really blew me away was La Falaise Dion who is a designer from the Ivory Coast who works with cowrie shells and though she's from the Ivory Coast she's now part of the permanent collection at the Victoria and Albert Museum which is how I found out about her and she designed costumes for Beyonce for the Black is King music video and what I really found interesting about that was that folk was being incorporated into the, the sort of higher highest echelons of celebrity as well so be it someone in their local community trying to keep a, a folk tale or a tall tale alive all the way up to Beyonce all of that can be folk there's space there for people to explore folk to explore their culture and their response to it and you can get hold of a copy through the Mag Culture webpage and if you're in London at Dash the Henge, a record store in Camberwell. That's it for this week's show. My thanks, as ever, to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, please subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And before we go, a little song for you. Air, Alone in Kyoto. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.